hi there. Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Like probably most people, we've watched a lot of shows over these months. We're huge fans of BC's Knowledge Network, so we watch lots of documentaries about geographical locations and history, as well as crime dramas and so forth. We loved The Queen's Gambit. And I even enjoyed Cheer more than I expected to. Somebody recommended it to me and I thought, okay. (laughs) And it was really quite interesting. Uh, Matt has been generously choosing Star Trek Discovery because he's a lovely person and he knows that I like it. I don't think he's hating it, though. We've learned a whole lot from shows like Explained and Rotten and enjoyed series like Burden of Truth and laughed our asses off over Dairy Girls and Norsemen. I loved the film Over the Moon and we both really did not like the Christmas Chronicles. I'm not quite sure why it's getting such rave reviews. But that's opinion for you. One of our favorite sources of entertainment at the moment is all the really bad Christmas romances. And there is quite a list to choose from. I mean, A Christmas Prince is a trilogy now, and The Princess Switch now has a sequel. We have a hoot watching them, and we hit pause every time we have to point out something really goofy. And a lot of them just have really stupid premises in the first place. Like, why are there so many princes? And they inevitably have terrible dialogue and characters that make utterly ridiculous choices. So here are a couple of the standout moments that made us press pause and make some sort of a comment to each other. If you take that woman's piece of art without her permission and change it, It is stealing, regardless of whether you have really good intentions of paying her for it eventually and think it would be a really great career move for her. It's stealing. Apparently, the perfect romantic outing is to go skating, yet nobody knows how to skate, even the ones who used to win awards as figure skaters. The carefully selected dress for the party, which we don't see until the big reveal, turns out to be awful and looks like she has it on backwards and we press pause so we can scrutinize how the tulle neckline is unfinished and looks like it's been cut while she was wearing it. What is up with that woman's crazy eyes? And in the one where the woman is a cop, she is literally on the phone with her partner and she doesn't tell him that she has just seen the bad guy and is going in. Oh no. The prince buys a dress for his new girlfriend to wear to the ball. And not only is the style awful, but it is burgundy and totally clashes with his red uniform, which is also ghastly. Then there's the downright awful case where two white women set themselves up outside a grocery store to collect money for charity, right where the black man is standing there playing his saxophone. They pay him 10 bucks to move a couple of feet down so he isn't in their way. He starts playing great jazz, which draws tons of people who drop lots of money into the women's buckets, and then they take off with all the money and don't share any of it with him. Oh my God, that was 
awful. And of course, it's played like it's meant to be this moment of great hilarity. And we're just sitting here staring at each other going, are you kidding me? And then there are just simply lots of romantic couples who have absolutely zero chemistry. They've got like negative chemistry. Who is in charge of casting these things? Anyway, for us, it's a great source of entertainment and we laugh a whole lot. So what is your favorite really bad show or movie? I want to hear about it. (laughs) We figure we need to write a romantic Christmas movie. We do a hell of a good job. It would have great dialogue and not a stupid premise. Mind you, we might have to write two because I think it would be hard to not create a send-up, like a purposefully really dumb story. Okay, on that note, back to what is not a really dumb story, at least not on purpose. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 9 Call Me the Guardian Thanks to the earthquake, one of the horses was lame, and Hunter was glad it was only one. Harley had a sprained wrist and Mullen a broken ankle. Harley would be fine in a day or two with the help of a mild healing potion, but Mullen was in considerable pain and, of course, could not walk. He could, with help, mount his horse and ride, but he complained of the difficulty in staying straight in his saddle with the use of only one stirrup. Also, understandably, searing pain shot through him as they rode. Hunter found him irritating as hell, but used the mood to pretend he was irked at being held up. They'd lost a couple of hours' time in rounding up the scattered horses and tending to the two men's injuries, so tempers were already short. Hugh fired an arrow through the neck of Kep's lame horse, and Kep rode with Harley. "'We're losing time rapidly,' Hunter said to himself. "'We'll have to stop to camp soon, Chief,' Tigo said after a while. "'Mullen'll need another pain draft.' Hunter grunted. "'We'll start all the earlier in the morning. I want to catch them.' Bianca Ardra dismounted, and drawing Marlin along behind her, cleared the way through the underbrush using the small scythe she had had the foresight to bring along. Been a long time since anyone's come this way. If anyone had ever come this way, she had purposely chosen a new route, a different path, a change. There had been plenty of that in the village of Hrath. A quick review of the last three or four moons was enough to make her head spin— she could trace it back to the attack on her best friend. Kier had said over and over that it wasn't Bianca's fault, that Gar and company had been counting the days since they were kids waiting for the right time to jump her again. If not last night, the next week, Kier had said. Anyway, I'm fine. Stop worrying. No amount of denial from Kier could convince Bianca. She should have been there. She knew something had been brewing for weeks. Yet Bianca had had her eye on Sten for months, so she allowed him to talk her into another drink, which had naturally evolved into more. Not only had it not been worth the wait, but the next day she had learned what was really going on. Sten had laughed in the morning. "'Thanks for the tumble, sweets!' He tickled her neck and reached for his trousers. "'I'm sure I had at least as much fun as Gar and the others.' Bianca sat up, pulling the blanket around her, suspicion nibbling at her skin like the chilly morning air— "'What do you mean by that?' "'Somebody had to keep you occupied. "'Don't get me wrong,' he reached for her, "'his hand on the back of her neck. "'I'd been wanting to try that for a while.' 
She pulled away. Hey, I'm glad I did. Don't be mad. The timing worked out perfect. She didn't say anything right away. Words stuck in her throat as she grappled with don't be mad after hearing Gar and the others. What did they do? She demanded. <laughs> Better get your clothes on and go check on Kier. His tunic on, he reached for his cloak. See if she's lying in the mud somewhere. He rammed his foot into a boot and fumbled about for the other, which had been hastily flung aside in the darkness. Never understood why you're friends with that witch. Bianca scrambled out of the blankets and started grabbing clothes. You mean to tell me that you planned this? That tumbling with me was about beating up Kier? He stood up. I told you I enjoyed it, he said defensively, as if that was the only thing that mattered to her. I'd even do it again. Bianca had assured him she did not share his assessment of the experience before dashing to Kier's, expecting to find her laid up with broken bones and stab wounds. Of course she hadn't. Though Bianca and their other close friends, Tarkin and Adric, did not believe Kier was a witch, as others did, their friend had always been a little bit frightening. Despite the odds, Kier had bested her eight attackers, suffering only some cuts and bruises, whereas Gar and his friends, well... They were relieved when Kier had left a week later. Bianca, on the other hand, had lost her best friend, and despite Kier's insistence that it wasn't her fault, had not forgiven herself for being taken in. At least I got him out of my system. Whacking her sigh that the bushes helped, too, even though the memory was several months old now. She sang soothing words at Marlin, who was tossing his head a little, and Bianca wondered if there was a mountain lion or something nearby. Bianca had used what she now analyzed as poor judgment several times lately, starting with that night she had been diverted and allowed Kier to be attacked. Not long after losing her best friend, Dregor's army had invaded the village with senseless destruction. Their leader, not Dregor himself, but some deputy, a tall fellow who ought to wear brighter colors to boost his pallor, had called all the young men and boys, even the little uns, the little uns all the way up to the very rogues who still look battered and beaten after their ill-advised jumping of a Wepnian-trained fighter. The deputy had lined them all up and was asking who among them had magical power or magical devices. Ridiculous! Why? Why had he come to Hrath of all places looking for such a thing? You couldn't get much more isolated and insignificant than Hrath, not if you covered every inch of Rydris. And when they couldn't give him the answer he wanted, of course they couldn't give him the answer he wanted, he'd started killing. Three. One of Gar's mates, a lad barely thirteen, and a little an, we to Miz only four years old. Tarkin stood in that line, unarmed, his eyes piercing her like darts pleading for her to take some sort of action. Their friend, Adric, the fourth of Brendau's trainees, already lay dead where he had defended his family in the initial attack. They had destroyed sections of the peaceful village and then left with, apparently, nothing. And Bianca, the Wepnian-trained fighter, had done nothing. She emerged from the trees, and the wind that scooted across the slope cooled the tears that moistened her face. Bianca wiped her cheeks with her sleeve. Destruction for destruction's sake. Bianca did not share the common view that the timing of Kier's departure was suspicious, that she had left knowing they were coming. Nor did she believe Kier had sent them. Kier had been her friend since they were little, 
and there was simply no way the other woman was responsible. She'd been in wrath since she was a little, and the accusation made no sense to Bianca. Yet there was one thing she was sure of. Kier would never have done nothing, Bianca said to Marlin as they stood on the edge of the forest. She had lost sight of the stream as they'd picked their way through the bushes, and she saw it now just to the left of where they stood. She drew Marlin along toward it. The village was rebuilding. Folks had come together like never before and helped each other. Neighbors had taken each other in, even if it meant sleeping on the floors. Everyone pitched in, including Lord Barthelon's soldiers, and more than once Bianca left to fetch water, returning to find a house where nothing but rubble had stood moments before. Her biggest fear was that it wasn't enough. Not that Bianca truly believed such a senseless attack would occur again, it was hard to imagine they would come back, but it seemed foolish to assume that it would be a one-time event. And as with any time a terrible thing occurs, she would do anything in her power to make sure that terrible thing never happened again. She loved Rath and the people in it, and unlike Kier, would not consider leaving it. But a village tended to feel smaller and closer as time went on, and Bianca's way of dealing with that was to take a few days away once in a while to collect herself. Many a time she had packed her horse with her bedroll and enough food and supplies for a few days and headed into the mountain above Hreth. This time was different. This time she was searching. She needed to find a way past her recent failures, especially now that she was preparing for something completely new and that was why she had packed her horse and had taken a different direction. She left Marlin on the edge of the forest so he could nosh on some lovely dandelions while she looked for a decent place to camp. She trundled up the scree, following the stream toward a rocky outcropping, the morning sun warming her back. She turned around to gaze out across the valley to where the village of Hrethley nestled, the farmlands stretching out along the river. The sun was climbing the other side of the opposite mountain, its rays peering over the peaks to brush the tops of the new roofs below. Rebuilding wasn't enough. To rebuild implied the new version of Hreth would be a duplicate of the old Hreth, and Bianca believed in her soul that a new version of the same Hreth was not good enough. They had received goods and support from other towns, and a lot of the villagers were content to accept the donations and return nothing but gratitude— Others agreed with Bianca that they must find a way to not only repay those generous offerings, but to stand on their own. And now she was responsible. People would look to her. The new magistrate of Hreth could not return to her village feeling just as helpless as she felt in this moment. <sighs> Bianca sighed heavily, breathing in the pine-scented forest on the light breeze and... Another smell, something animalish. She looked back at Marlin thirty paces away, contentedly chewing. She breathed again. Just forest. Bianca stepped carefully over the rocks, along the hill, scanning the area. Then the wind changed. There was definitely another smell that was distinctly not forest. A rock wobbled under her foot and she nearly fell. The morning sun caught a sparkle on the rock, and she crouched, shifting the sword on her hip, and turned the rock over. Her eyes widened and her jaw went slack. The underside of the rock was pebbled with pale green gemstones, each one about the size of her thumb. She turned over another rock, and another excitement bubbling in her chest. Aiden's breath. 
She drew her dagger and, with almost no effort, pried several chunks of green stones. She lifted her hand, and the sunlight bathed the gems so her palm was a yellow-green glow. Bianca's hand trembled with excitement. This is Perido. Marlin whooshed in agreement. Perido was known for its magical properties of harnessing the power of the sun. It was a charm against spells and evil, as well as giving the wearer courage, and it had many other attributes. Bianca would check with Brendau, but she was pretty certain, and if she was right, this might solve some of Rath's resource problems. She tucked the stones into her pouch. If they could gather it, sell it raw, or maybe some of Rath's crafters could use it in jewelry or ta- She froze. Every hair on her body stood on end. Marlin, her beloved mount, was thirty paces back down and across the hillside. The whooshing sound, which she had out of habit thought was Marlin, had come from up the hill, in the opposite direction from where she had left him. It whooshed again. A wind ruffled her hair, echoed by a tremble all through her body. Bianca stared down at the rocks. A mountain lion? She had to look up. She had to, but terror had seized every fiber of every muscle like she gripped her sword in a sparring match. You're a sword fighter, she pleaded with herself. Are you going to let it pounce on you without looking it in the eye? No damn way. She drew her weapon and whirled around to face it. It wasn't a mountain lion. Five paces up the hill was a baby dragon. She shrieked and slid on the wobbly rocks beneath her boots, sending pebbles rolling and bouncing down into the trees. She slipped and landed ungracefully on her knees, then her belly, joining the rocks in sliding down the slope. Frantically she grabbed at rocks, and between her hand and her sword she finally slowed down. The rolling rocks stopped. She looked back up at the dragon from her prone position. It cocked its head and nodded, for all the world like it was laughing at her. Its wings were tucked in at its sides. Hello, Bianca said as softly as the breeze. Where'd you come from? It looked at her out of one eye, then twitched its head to observe her out of its other eye. Bianca searched her memory for every story she had heard of human encounters with dragons. They were rare, but not unheard of. Hrath had two elders, Brendau being one of them, who had each come in contact with a dragon in the wild. Both of those were decades ago, and not around these parts. Still, the stories were thrilling enough to be requested at community gatherings, and the concept of being courteous to a dragon was more or less common knowledge. It was one thing to hear stories. To meet one face to face was another thing altogether, and everything Bianca had heard seemed to have dropped out of her mind and bounced down the hillside with the pebbles. Below, Marlin stomped and whinnied, and Bianca willed him to calm down lest he aggravate the dragon. Unfortunately, her powers of psionic communication were limited to nothing. The only way to calm him was to deal with the present situation. Bianca strained to remember anything about dragon behavior. Mostly she remembered they were one of the smartest creatures in existence. With that in mind, she hoped she had shown, by laying there on the rocks, that she did not intend to attack it. Her initial engagement with sword in hand probably had not helped. The dragon hadn't pounced on her anyway, which she took to be a good sign. Dragons could sense mood and even understand human body language, she recalled Brendau saying, but that was an adult dragon. Were the rules different for a youngling? How would this little one have learned those things if it had never encountered a human before? 
Was it instinct or intelligence such that it had the ability to learn quickly, to know that there was even something to learn here? Did it innately understand the difference between a friend and an enemy? That would make it a lot smarter than humans, Bianca thought. Deciding she couldn't lie here staring at it all day, she made up her mind. She began to sing, as she often did to Marlin, tentatively at first, paying attention to the dragon's reaction, then with a bit more confidence. Still softly. It was a song about the morning, the first idea that came to her head. She couldn't tell if the dragon liked the song, but figured if it didn't like it, its feelings on the matter would be clear. Bianca took her next risk. Still humming, she painstakingly drew her knee beneath her and pushed up. The dragon watched, its head cocked to the side. She lifted her knee again to place her foot carefully on the rocks. The last thing she needed was to try to get to a standing position, only to lose her footing and startle the creature by falling again. At last she got herself upright, pausing each time the dragon shifted uncertainly, its feet almost as tentative on the rocks as her own. She straightened, and the dragon took a little hop backwards. One more thing she recalled from Brendau's tale was how a sword-wielder should show she didn't intend to use her weapon. Bianca carefully sheathed her sword. She stood with her arms straight, palms out, and raised them out to the side, halfway between vertical and horizontal, and bowed her head. She held the position and stopped singing for a few slow breaths intended to portray calm, then carefully, hopefully, heart banging in her chest, looked up at it. It opened its wings slightly and bobbed its head at her. Exhilaration was like lightning through her every limb. A funny thing happened. The dragon made some noises in its throat, like cooing or purring or singing. Bianca sang another line of the song, a bit more strongly this time. The dragon purred again. All around them was silence, the slight breeze making its own music through the trees. She realized even Marlin had been calmed by the song. Her voice sonorous now, Bianca sang to the dragon, and slowly, slowly, like an insect's progress across a leaf, like a Wepnian sword drill, she reached her hand toward the dragon. It hopped uphill, sending a few rocks rolling and bouncing. Bianca didn't move, but kept singing, her hand out as if to catch raindrops. The dragon steadied itself and cocked its head at her. She kept singing. It flapped its wings. It cooed and purred again. Bianca kept singing. The dragon cooed, and in a gurgling sort of hum, began to sing with her. It had learned the melody and sang with her. Bianca kept singing through a throat clenched with emotion. Her cheeks dampened by tears, she kept singing with the dragon. It stretched out its neck until it could reach and sniffed her hand. In the back of her mind, behind this magical moment, she was aware that although she had just arrived on this mountainside, hadn't even found a spot to camp yet, she had found possible solutions to several of Hreth's problems. A supply of a valuable gem. And a dragon. Bianca Ardra, the new magistrate of Hreth, would no longer do nothing. Fennel clung to life like the lichen clung to the dripping walls, but within his unconscious state he submerged into memory. The murky, murky water surrounds him, cold, blind, 
Smashed into sucking mud, the force that pushed him in lifts its weight and moves off. He tries to kick, but his little foot is bound by a weed, like serpents and eels. The lake bottom is slimy and sludgy. He reaches down to unhook his foot, misses. Chest constricts with panic, the need to breathe. Reaches down. The foot does not slide out of the slippery weed. Need to breathe. His head screams with fear, panic, demand. His blonde hair is in his eyes, his nose, his mouth. Sees red, white, black, as life depletes. A desperate yank pulls the weed from the sludge's grip. He thrusts. Which way is up? Out! Out! Flailing arms! Another yank from above grips his shirt, pulling against the press of the water, drawing him with a burst into glorious, glorious air. Voices hollering, rupee and pollen. Gasp! (laughs) Cough! Gasp! Clutching the grass with small hands, vowing never to return to Dion's realm. Kier and Fennel landed sopping wet on the hard ground. Water spilled around them and rushed away. It steamed violently in the chill air. The doorway closed behind them, the rest of the water trapped in its lightless prison. The ground was grass, though sopped like after a full day's rain. Kier rested her face on it, not caring where she was, only that she was no longer underground. The whistling wind blindsided her. It instantly annihilated any warmth left over from the hot spring. Now she was just wet. Her drenched body turned to ice. Her left arm was still around Fennel, who lay face down. The abrupt climate change had not brought him round, though she could now at least see the rise and fall of his chest. She gave his head a nudge so his nose and mouth weren't obstructed by grass. She trembled with fear and cold. This was not the first time she had been inexorably trapped in a terrifying circumstance and had escaped through a doorway that appeared when things couldn't possibly get any worse. The first time had not been all that long ago, and when she had described her experience, she had been greeted with suspicion, even accusation. She didn't want to imagine how Jaskelin would react if he knew the inconceivable had happened again. Could it have been Kami? No, the wizard wasn't around the first time. How in seven hells am I going to explain this? She shoved fear aside to deal with the here and now. A quick check on her and Fennel's pouch told her the knots were secure and none of the precious lichen had been lost. It had lived in a wet environment so it could stand to stay wet at least for a while until it could be dried properly. A wave of intense relief flattened her to the ground again and she permitted one sob to escape her chest. A distraught whinny aroused her attention. She sat up and was immediately sorry for it as the wind smacked her square in the face. They were at the foot of the hill upon which they had dismounted earlier that day. At least, she assumed it had been that day. The sun, although blindingly bright after the blackness of the cavern, was a hair's breadth from the western horizon. The horses had scattered after the quake, but were finding each other again. Kier braced herself and stood up. Her teeth chattered and every muscle vibrated with cold as she cast her eyes about for any sign of her companions. Derry and Jaskelin, who had remained behind, were nowhere to be seen. Presumably they were all off looking for her and Fennel, although it occurred to her just then that Janik and Skimnoddle had been wandering on the rocks too. What had happened to them when the quake struck? Kier's fingers were stiff from trying to hold her soaked cloak close to her. She unfastened it and flung the garment to the ground. Damn this wind! She cursed as it blasted her again. 
Though the wind was not as severe here as it had been out on the rocks, it hadn't died down since their departure from the surface of the world, and it mixed poorly with two saturated explorers. Kier could hardly move with cold, but knew she had to do something to alleviate their circumstances. Blankets were a must. Donegal was nearest, and Trigg and Layout had sufficiently calmed themselves to munch on some grass beyond him. Skimnoddle's pony wasn't far away, and he was a wiser choice than the warhorse. Forcing herself to a bent standing position, she bade her legs to hasten. Their frigid, jerky movements were better than nothing, and she finally stumbled close enough to the creature to speak to him in as soothing a tone as her shivering voice could muster. Her fingers were almost paralyzed with cold, and her body shuddered uncontrollably, but she finally managed to unbuckle the straps holding the halfling's blanket and bedroll in place. Then she ran back to her friend. She rolled him onto dry ground and threw the blanket over him. It barely covered his upper half, but it was better than nothing while she took a moment to care for herself. She'd be more useful to Fennel if she weren't suffering so. She squeezed water from her braid, then shed armor and all upper clothing as well as her drenched boots. She took the blanket off fennel and wrapped it around her shoulders. The white rose from Kami was still in perfect silken condition. She placed it carefully underneath her cloak, to be hidden until she could get some clothes on. Nakedness under the blanket was an astonishing improvement over wet clothes, and the shivering lessened. Working quickly, Kier laid the halfling's bedroll open on a dry section of grass, then yanked every stitch of wet clothing off fennel. She rolled him up in the bedroll like he was filling for flatbread. His legs stuck out the bottom end, but she could fix that. She whistled to Trigg, but the bay couldn't hear her in the wind, so she ran over to him. The run did her good, though, sending the blood pumping through her and warming her. She dug out her other tunic and threw it on before leading the horse back to fennel, where she wrapped her blanket around his chilled feet and legs. By this time, the sun had completely retreated below the edge of the world, and the sky was being overtaken by night in the east. It would not be too long before the darkness would stretch its canopy fully across to the west, but Kier knew she would never dread the mere darkness of night ever again. She hoped the others were all right and would be back soon. Kier dug out her minimalist physicking kit and knelt down to see what she could do about her friend's lumpy gash. What the hell? Fennel's voice, weak but conscious at last. Oh, Fennel, I'm so glad. Kier leaned over to kiss him on the cheek. Wow, maybe my mother was right, Fennel said. About what? Oh, nothing. Well, welcome back in more ways than one, she smiled. But Kier, how in the name of the goddess did we... Shh, take it easy. I think Kami might have stepped in. I'll try to explain later. Right now you've got a nasty cut here, and I'm not dairy, so you'd better hold still. He winced in agreement as her cloth touched an especially tender spot. At least the spring water cleaned it for me, she murmured as she worked. That saved you even more pain. I'm an idiot, Kier, he whispered. She grinned. Yeah, I know. Did you just figure that out? His eyes widened in intensity, and he gripped her arm. No, Kier, I mean it. I could have got us help sooner. My mother gave me a bell. If you ring it, the call can be heard for some distance, but only by friends. Here, let me show you. She stopped him. Hold still. It doesn't matter. Your bell will be useful another time, and our friends will be back soon. Where is Derry anyway? Fennel asked. And everyone else? She shifted her position, putting one knee up and the other down. Her leather trousers were still wet and clammy and stiff. She waved the cloth in the direction of the fells. 
I imagine they're still out there somewhere. She resumed mopping. He shut his eyes and squirmed under the blankets. Oh, hell on earth, what a day. Speaking of a day, Fennel, she said as she finished bandaging him, that rod of light that was supposed to last a day, apparently a day means something different wherever it came from. She patted his shoulder and stood up. And just then they both heard a cry. In the last traces of daylight, Derry stood on the rocks, waving back to the others before rushing to embrace the two lost friends. In spite of the cold, neither elf nor woman had ever received such a warm greeting. Kier finally changed into spare trousers, and after stuffing a towel down inside her boots, she laid out her and Fennel's wet things on the rocks so the wind could whip away the water. Derry checked Fennel's wound and praised Kier for her treatment of it. There was no fuel for a fire, so Jaskelin had to conjure one, and it was small, just enough to boil some water for tea for Kier and the injured elf, and for some potatoes to bake in the coals. Thankfully, as the daylight died, so did the wind, and warmth was not so scarce. When the potatoes were done, Skimnoddle extracted them from the coals with tongs and handed them around, but he sat down to a hunk of bread and an apple himself. Janik peered at his potato suspiciously. What, did you do something to these? The halfling shook his head. No, I hate potatoes. Derry put his spoon down. How can you hate potatoes? They're a staple. I assure you, Skimnoddle said with a shudder, when it came time for the dispensation of these bulbous tubers, I was provided with a surfeit. Kier dug into hers with her knife and let the hot, flaky flesh crumble on her tongue as they talked. She had assured them all straight away that their sojourn underground had been successful, and they all agreed that the lichen should be divided between them, so that if for some reason they should become separated during their travels, some, at least, of the precious ingredient would find its way to Barthelin Castle. Skimnoddle and Janik had been out on the rocks when the tremors began. They had tried to return to the horses, but had made it only halfway when the earthquake struck. Both had tumbled and slipped, sustaining minor injuries, scratches, and bruises, mostly. When at last it was over and they finally reached Derry and Jaskelin, the four had set out again immediately to try to locate the other two. "'And I'm hoping now that you'll be able to tell us where you were and how you got out,' Derry said. "'We were all heartsick for quite a while there.' With the way those rocks caved in over the eastern area where you both were, well, we could hardly hope you had survived. Fennel and Kier took turns describing the subterranean village and the discovery of first one lichen and then the other. But when it came to the point where Fennel lost consciousness and all eyes were on Kier to deliver the rest of the story, her heartbeat sped up with what she was about to say. Before the others returned, while fetching blankets and so forth, she'd had plenty of time to come up with an answer. When she had escaped from Ronav Malachite in the same fashion, Jaskelin suspected that some wizard had been present and had taken pity on her and sent her back to her friends, and Kier had no other explanation to offer. The mage had spoken to her as if he was accusing her of... something, of what she didn't know. This time there was definitely no one else around to hand the responsibility to, and if she was honest with herself it frightened her more than a little that twice now something had happened that she had no control over. She had no more answers to the inevitable questions this time than she'd had before. She didn't know how it had happened and didn't want to be treated like she was some sort of criminal for the rest of the journey. She did the best she could to come up with something plausible until she could work it out. I just went into automatic mode. Adrenaline kicked in, you know? 
With Fennel having been unconscious, she had plenty of room for flexibility. The light rod lasted long enough for me to haul us both out of the water and into the passage. She went on to describe a faint glow of light that appeared once her eyes had acclimated to the darkness. And then Kami stepped in. He had guided me in, and he guided me out. That last tremor worked in our favor, Fennel. Where an earlier one had blocked the path, that last one caved in the ceiling and opened a gap. I dragged you up the pile of rocks, sorry about any extra bruises, and hauled you out. Luckily, it wasn't too far from here. I couldn't drag you any farther. Fennel was moved to dumbness. He seemed about to speak, but instead reached over and squeezed Kier's arm. Janik shook his furry head and gave Kier a sidelong glance, which told her he was impressed. "'Such bravery! Such skill! Such determination! Tenacity!' Skim Noddle boomed, as much as a halfling can boom. "'It is just these characteristics, these demonstrations of strength of body and mind, that continue to draw me to you.' "'Shut your trap,' Kier said, with little feeling, appreciative of the darkness to hide her flush of guilt. She became aware of the captain's odd expression and had a feeling he wasn't convinced.' Nobody asked to see where she and Fennel had emerged from underground, for which Kier was profoundly thankful. "'We're all just glad to have you back and that you found the lichen,' he said. A tremor of exhaustion shuddered through Kier, and she raised her head from her knees long enough to say, "'Skimnoddle, I've used your bedroll for Fennel, so if you want you can use mine rather than exchange everything around.' "'Madam, I am both surprised and delighted by your suggestion,' the halfling said, "'and I accept your offer with the greatest pleasure.' Kier kicked herself for giving him such a golden opportunity. "'I said use, not share.' Fennel came to her rescue. "'I feel at least well enough to change from Skimnoddle's bed to my own. "'That is, unless you want to share with me,' he gave Kier a sly wink. "'I've bathed today.' Derry offered to keep the first watch. He wasn't all that tired and had some things on his mind, not the least of which was the white rose Kier carried with her. He sat just outside the feeble light from the conjured fire and stared out into the deep night. A brushing sound made him turn his head to see Jaskelin coming to join him. "'Everyone else asleep,' Derry said. "'Soundly,' the mage gathered his robes around his knees and lowered himself gracefully cross-legged to the grass." "'Anything on your mind?' The question hung in the dark for a moment. "'Do you mean Kier?' Derry lay back on the grass. It was not like him to be this lax when it came to a night watch, but with all that had happened today, he had a hard time believing anyone was out there waiting to attack. Besides, who could be bothered to show up here in the cold fells, this soulless fragment of Rydris, uninhabitable, nothing living but grass?' and Jaskelin was here now, too, so between the two of them they'd spot anything untoward. "'Yes, I guess I do. "'Let me guess. You do not entirely believe her story of their escape, but you do not know how to broach the subject without calling her a liar.' "'You too, huh?' The black man nodded and clasped his hands, resting them on his ankles. "'I am afraid there are still times that I just don't know what to make of our friend Kier.' "'You don't trust her?' "'It isn't that I mistrust her,' Jaskelin explained. "'Like I said, she is an unknown variable. "'She risked her life going down there with Fennel. "'They were successful in finding the Falander. "'It took a great deal of strength and courage, "'all the things dear Skimnoddle listed, "'to get the both of them out.' "'But her ending didn't sit well with you,' Derry finished for him. 
It was too glib. Something was missing from the story. I don't understand it. After everything we've done in the last few months, even since we left on this journey, why does she feel a need to keep things back from us? Not to mention the water. Derry looked at him sidelong, then remembered the darkness. What about the water? Jeskellen wrapped his arms around his knees. If she dragged Fennel across the rocks and along the grass, why was there a patch of very wet grass in one localized spot? Derry shook his head. I'm afraid I don't understand what you could be getting at. I checked. Perhaps I noticed it as we all moved about our camp because I am barefoot. I stepped in one small area where the grass was drenched. There was no other place that I could find where the grass was as wet. Then obviously they lay there long enough to... Look, Jeskellen, what are you suggesting? Are you saying she didn't drag Fennel out of the caverns? Jeskellen shrugged, waving his hand, as if embarrassed about bringing it up. I do not know. It is probably nothing. But I find it does not become easier for me to get close to her. Perhaps you, Derry, can ask her more about it. You seem to be the one she connects with mostly out of all of us. You could find some polite way of finding out more. Derry's eyebrows shot up doubtfully. I don't know. He turned his gaze toward the west as if looking for final vestiges of sunlight. She seems to be closer to Fennel these days, he said, voicing something that had occurred to him but he hadn't yet put into words. That's only natural considering what happened at his father's home, Jeskellen said reasonably. Derry shrugged. It cannot hurt for you to approach the subject with her. She respects you. Derry placed his hands on his belly. Maybe. It's worth a try. It was the cornfield dream again, only this time the stalks went on and on, and Kier couldn't reach the edge. She tripped, and one of the plants fell onto her, its long, narrow leaves wrapping around her face and shaking her. Her eyes opened to the dark of the cold fells and the face that stared down at her. Her body stiffened, but she didn't yell because there was a hand over her mouth. The face that hovered just above hers was as non-threatening as the whiff of lilacs surrounding it. It was smiling. Its eyes were uncommonly dark and were accentuated by the pallor of his skin, which was framed by even darker hair. The face was not unfamiliar. She had seen it once—no, twice—before. This time the faint firelight flickered off him the way it would off a mirror. Strange that she should awaken from a deep sleep and not feel threatened by the man whose hand covered her mouth. But stranger things had happened to Kier lately. "'Don't yell, please.' He spoke so softly she could hardly hear him. I'll remove my hand now, all right? Kier found herself shrugging in agreement. Why not? He lifted his hand and beckoned for her to follow him. She turned to see who was on watch. How had this person come all the way into their camp without being noticed by anyone? Not even the horses? Voices murmured from the other side of the campfire. Derry and Jeskellen, if the empty beds were anything to go by. She stole out of her bed and silently went after him, though she grabbed her knife that still lay next to her blankets. If he was a baddie, he could easily have taken it, she reasoned. She followed him almost to the rocks. He was also uncommonly tall. "'Who are you?' she asked. He smiled pleasantly. First of all, you might put the point of that dagger in another direction. If I'd wanted to hurt you, I'd have done so already. And I certainly would not have let you keep that.' She lowered the knife. How'd you get into our camp? Your friends are very busy chatting over there, he said, gesturing toward the two they could not see at the other side of the fire. 
I stayed away from where they were because they would have awakened the lot of you had I let them know I was here. That's the point. But what are you doing here? You might call me the Guardian. He scratched his beardless chin. You might call me your Guardian. What? Why? Why did you want to talk to me? How did you know about the goblins and the explosion in shale? A thought struck her. Was it you who opened the too many questions? He perched on a low rock. She could hardly see him, his black clothes dissolving into the black night. Thankfully, or weirdly, as Kier thought, his translucent complexion glowed even with the conjured fire so distant. Now, the reason I came was to tell you that you would be wise not to linger in the cold fells. We didn't plan to. Of course not, you bright child. But I must warn you that you are being followed. Now, don't be alarmed. I am not sure if they intend to do you harm, or even who they are, but I thought you should know, and being on a peaceful mission, there really is no reason for anyone to desire contact with you. The earthquake has bought you some time, for they did not escape unscathed, but you should make haste. Why are you telling me this? What does it matter to you? The sound he made was like a whispered laugh. Oh, of course it matters to me. He leaned toward her, his breath like warm water. The good must prevail. How do you know all this? Kier trembled, both mystified and irritated by his charm. His voice had a low sibilance, his T's pronounced clearly but gently. How do I... Oh, my dear, lovely girl, I know all about your mission and about you. Did I not say I am your guardian? He lowered his voice and his eyes darkened. You are Kier Halliden. You are looking for the cure for Alon Mare. You killed Ronav Malachite in Nenya. What's more, you enjoyed it. It felt good to kill him. Until afterward. Kier's skin prickled. She had been alone in those woods when Ronav had died by her sword. She tried to speak, but no sound came out, not even a breath. Need I tell you more? She could hardly breathe and she was unable to back away. But I will tell you more, one thing more, a thing you possibly don't even know yourself. I know about a particular magical gift you have. Now, lovely, lovely girl. He reached out an index finger and stroked her cheek, sending shimmers down her body. I must go. I leave it up to you to decide whether to tell your friends about our chat or not. He drew out from somewhere a white stone that fit in the palm of her hand. Keep this with you, and I'll always be able to find you, rather than by trial and error. I say again, make haste. And with that, he rose from his rock and faded into the night. Kier sank to the grass, clutching the stone. A gift? She lost track of time, but it might have been a half hour later that Derry appeared in the firelight and noticed she was gone. Kier forced herself to stir and hasten back, calling quietly, I'm here. She told him she'd gone to relieve herself, and volunteered to take the next watch. He and Jeskelin settled in bed at last, and Kier wandered around the outskirts of the camp, wondering what was the point in keeping watch when strange men can just walk right in with nobody noticing. And what the hell did he mean by gift? What the heck? I'm not sure Kier should be trusting this guardian fellow, but you know, he hasn't steered her wrong yet, so... Tune in next week to hear the chapter that I wrote based on a 
painting. And I'll tell you more about that next week. Now, I'm going to go do some more decorating, including my tree that smells so good. It's hard to get motivated to do Christmas baking, though, when it's just going to be the two of us at home and my usual baking partner can't come home. But it's okay. We're attending a virtual Christmas party this weekend and have started coming up with ideas for having Christmas with the kids, even though they can't come for presents and dinner here. It's all going to be all right. Hey, if you know someone who is alone, please reach out to them and check in. This is a tough time of year for a lot of people at the best of times, so I worry about this year being even harder for some folks. And if you are one of those people, if you need to, you can drop me a line at totallyfantastictitle at gmail.com and I'll say hi. Please take care of yourselves and each other. Thank you to my wonderful family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thank you, David and Sharon. Shout out to the original six. I hope you're listening and enjoying. And thanks to you lovely listeners. You're doing a great job. Keep that shit up. Now, go be fantastic.